Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I am Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So today we have a Christians of History episode and it's uh, being brought to you by Lucas the Great. Um, Lucas, if you don't know him, he's a really cool dude. Uh, He's in seminary. He likes beer, maybe, I don't know. And he is cool. So he's going to talk about Karl Barth. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. So yeah, we're talking about Karl Barth. Not Barth, but Barth. Um, This is an episode I'm really excited about because I, in reading over his life, I was reminded of a lot of stuff that I had learned before or that I remembered, um, but I also learned some new things. And it just really got me in a way that not all the Christians of history I've done um, have. It, It Preparing for this one really got me, you know, jazzed about one day when I have time again to read some Bart, um, because he's just such a fascinating figure, both in terms of his life and work, but also his theology, as, as we'll see, is so unique and so important and so towering that he's really one of those figures, like if you're into like academic theology, it, it seems like you're going to have to read some Bart at some point, whether you end up liking him or not. Um, but also he just, like I said, is so fascinating and his theology is so interesting. And for his time, really like revolutionary is the word for it, which, which usually isn't a word that I like when it comes to theology, like innovation and new and revolution doesn't usually bode well. Um, but in context, as we'll see in a few minutes, I think I think it just adds to the, interest that I have in, in spending more time with him, um, which we'll just have to wait and see whenever I one day have time to pick what books I read again. So Karl Barth was born not in America, but in Europe. Specifically, he is a, or he was a Swiss theologian. Um, he was born in 1886 and he died in 1968. So he lived, I mean, he was living and working, you know, he, he was born early enough in the 19th century that he was an adult for pretty much all of the really momentous um, events that happened during his life during the 20th century, World War One, World War Two, the rise of the Soviet Union, um, all of the theological things that were going on at that time, um, as we'll see, played a really, really big role in his in in his life um so like i said he's swiss he was born in basel switzerland um his father fritz was a professor of new testament um at the university of Bern, um and he ended up studying at quite a few like really good uh universities Bern, berlin tubingen um which if you know anything about the history of you know academic theology tubingen is a really really important um, school for higher criticism and sort of the the way of approaching the Bible that really informed liberal Protestantism um, under such people as one of Bart's teachers, Adolf von Harnack. Um, and basically, we can kind of, for our purposes, just kind of lump 
his education and the sort of tradition he was coming out of as liberal Protestantism, um, which, you know, basically kind of de-emphasized a lot of the teachings of scripture that had to do with things like miracles or the supernatural, as well as things like sin. And it was, it's kind of, you know, the, the idea of, um, the brotherhood, brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God, less focus on, you know, Christ and who he says he is and the cross and, and what it means for us. Um, that's a whole, that's a whole nother series of episodes, liberal Protestantism, but, but basically that type of Christianity, broadly speaking, is where Bart is sort of being raised in and, um, being a part of and being educated in, um, during the early 20th century. So after, after schooling, he, um, became a pastor and he uh, was first a pastor in uh, funnily enough Geneva which is pretty cool Um, and uh, he did that for two years and then he moved to a small working class village called Safinville in uh, 1911 where he served until 1921 Um, there he got he got married and he uh, you know for that decade, was the pastor of this small uh, parish. He, uh, in, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but but he grew up in the in the Reformed tradition. Um, so, sort of the liberal Reformed of of the day is kind of where he came from. So um, he spent a lot of time um, working in not just the theological and spiritual lives of his parishioners, but also advocating for their education and social rights. Um, And during this time, he also wrote, this is really important, uh, he wrote the first version of his commentary on on Romans, which eventually kind of became the thing that made him famous, was was this this commentary. Um, And, you know, particularly... Uh, it didn't just kind of make him famous, but it also really kind of changed the, the, the trajectory of his career because be, it was because of the commentary and the attention that it got um, that he ended up being given a professorship at the University of Göttingen in Germany, um, even though he didn't even have his doctorate, <laughs> um, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, and so the Epistle to the Romans, his commentary on Romans called the Epistles of the Romans. Um, it's kind of <laughs> confusing to, to talk about it, but um, was a really, really important commentary. Um, it went through a lot of revisions. Uh, I've actually used this commentary in um, some papers that I that I wrote at Moody, and it it is, I haven't read through the whole thing. Um, Bart's style is very dense, and the ideas he deals with are, are pretty heady. Um, but it is a really unique commentary. The, I, I remember specifically using it for a paper I was writing on Romans 13, um, where Paul talks about submitting to uh, governing authorities, that those first few verses of, of chapter 13, and referencing Bart's commentary. Um, and it was just, it, like I, it, I can't really explain it without getting into a whole host of things here that are not the point of this episode, but it's a very, very good commentary to just peruse it's hard to just peruse but um it 
I think it would it would do, you do well to have some Bart on the shelf alongside whoever else you use for your study or sermon prep or whatever it is that um, that you reference commentaries for. Um, so while he was a professor, as I said, he he was appointed professor, um, and he he moved to a couple different uh, universities. But over the next decades, he he was a professor, and at one point he was a professor of systematic theology in Bonn. And while he was working there, he began working on um, what would be considered his his magnum opus, his his crowning achievement, which is the Church Dogmatics series, um, which was basically a gargantuan systematic theology that he never actually finished. Um, now, he didn't finish it. However, it is 13 volumes and over 9,300 pages. <laughs> uh, and he didn't finish. Um, Jensen, I don't know if you remember this, but Moody's Library had a church dog, had, had a, a set of the church dogmatics. So if, like, they took up, not, not a whole library shelf, but, like, they took up at least probably a whole, like, normal household bookshelf shelf. Wow. And the last volume in the set, at least that Moody had, um, was was an index, and it was like a book. My like it, it was its own book, right? <laughs> um, which <laughs> makes insane. sense if you've got ninety three hundred pages of stuff to index. But um, but yeah, so he never finished it anyway. Hmm. <laughs> um, but the church dogmatics is really important because, like I mentioned in the beginning, he he's a really interesting figure. His theology is really unique uh, to his time. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but also. It's super, super important because of how influential and how, how much attention he ended up getting. And, and not, not him per se, but his theology. Um, it's a student of theology, someone who's interested in theology would do well to um, pursue reading, reading into Bart. Even if you don't pick up, you know, mm-hmm. shop online for a, for a new copy of the, the whole church dogmatics, you know, I wouldn't. I want it. They look really nice. They're like a nice, like subtle kind of gray uh, with very like simple bindings. So they, they look really nice. And I feel like it makes you look like it's like a set of the church dogmatics, a set of the anti-Nicene fathers, the the Summa Theologica, like the works of Luther. Like there are all these things I want to have on my shelves just to have them on the shelves, which is so stupid and Way. luckily they're too expensive for no you. i mean that's how i feel about all of banner of truths like when they do like you know <laughs> the works of calvin the works of edwards the works of whatever other reformer <laughs> right um but even if you don't read the church dogmatics which i haven't so i wouldn't blame you um uh there are a lot of books on bart and about bart that i think would be would be um well worth the time because of just how important if you're interested in theology his theology is super important. And one really cool, interesting um, aspect of his, uh, you know, the work that his theology influenced in his life, um, which this kind of dovetails a little bit with the episode we did on Bonhoeffer a while back. I don't remember how long ago that was. It was a little bit ago, I think. Um, but he, meaning Bart, not, not Bonhoeffer, um, was also strongly opposed to the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler's uh, regime. Um, And 
he even even before Adolf Hitler came to power, he was vocally opposed to the Nazi Party and and the the um, the agenda of National Socialism, um, the, like the you know what it what it meant to be a National Socialist was something that he saw very, I think, correctly as being um, incompatible with with the Christian faith. Um, if you're wondering, Bonhoeffer came out July 31st. You can go back and find it. Oh, wow. Dang, I thought it was like a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, along with Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth was um, opposed to National Socialism, opposed to Adolf Hitler. And he, um, so if, if you, in Bonhoeffer, we mentioned the, the Confessing Church, um, which was basically sort of an underground um, church, you know, pastors and church leaders got together to sort of form an alternative underground church in opposition to the the national churches of Germany, which had submitted to, aligned with the Nazi party politically, or, or at least, you know, agreed to sort of swear allegiance to them and, and kind of like be part of the, the, the agenda of, of, you know, give the stamp of approval to the agenda so that Hitler can kind of point to, you know, oh, God's on my side. That kind of thing was what Bart was really concerned with. Um, and he, you know, his involvement with the Confessing Church was really important because he actually was largely the one who wrote the Barman Declaration, which is basically the confession of the Confessing Church. It's sort of the document that was was the, um, like, the manifesto of the, of the Confessing Church. Um uh, which was, it's just pretty cool to, to, to think about just, you know, to think about Bart being not just theologically significant and involved in, you know, debates and theology, but also being really tied in with, with what we now look back on as, you know, one of the most significant world events that was going on at the, at the time of, of when Bart was alive. So it's just kind of cool to see. And it's always nice to see somebody who sees clearly in the midst of, of adversity if that makes sense like again this is probably a whole nother episode but you know i'm not too i'm not so arrogant to say that oh if i was in germany i'd join the confessing church obviously it's easy for me to say that now that obviously it should be what everybody did who was a christian um however i didn't i didn't live through you know i, I wasn't i wasn't a german citizen in the 30s so right. i can't i can't pretend to know what it's like to, to be there. But I do, with the benefit of history, I can say that I can analyze the situation and, and the the policies and the agenda and the beliefs of Hitler and the Nazis. And, and it was the right decision to repudiate <laughs> their ideology based on scripture and the Christian tradition and the faith that allegedly people were confessing in Christ. Um, so because of that, it's great to see somebody like Bonhoeffer, like Bart who in the midst of a really trying time, they were able to see really clearly. Um, mm. Yeah. So anyway, um, he was he was a part of the uh, Confessing Church, um, and he ended up losing his job because he was not able to swear fealty to... Um, to Hitler, um, he was not able to, as a Christian, um, 
you know, say that I can, you know, I mean, you know, he wasn't able to pledge allegiance <laughs> to, to Nazi Germany. Um, and I, I really like this quote. He said, so he, he refused to swear the pledge that, that all university professors had to, um, but he, he didn't just refuse to swear a pledge. He he refused to swear a pledge without adding, quote, to the extent that I responsibly am able as a Protestant Christian, which I thought was really interesting because one, it just shows he you know, he's his integrity in terms of yeah, I'll 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 say yes to all of this in so far as I can as a Christian. But I also thought it was interesting that he wasn't just refusing. He wasn't just saying I can't swear allegiance to Hitler. He was saying, I'll swear allegiance with this caveat. And even that wasn't good enough. So he lost his job as a professor. Um, and so, you know, like I said, he wasn't he wasn't Swiss, but he was in Bonn. He was a professor in Germany. That's why he was associated with all the German church stuff. But because he wasn't German, he ended up having to leave Germany. Um, and then he went back to Basel, Switzerland, where he was from. And he became professor of systematic theology there. And he kind of... Um, you know, from his position there, continued to advocate for um, the confessing church, the Jews in Europe, oppressed people, that kind of thing. And he ended up staying at Basel until his retirement in um, 1962. So he, his theology is kind of where I want to go to next. I mentioned a couple times that it's kind of unique and interesting. Um, It has come to be known as dialectical theology um so a dialectic is kind of a back and forth between two things two things inform each other and kind of feed into each other um and he what he was kind of referring to was this dialectical kind of paradoxical uh way of doing theology, of approaching theology, in light of what he called um, a crisis, God's judgment under which the world stood. Um, And so, you know, a quote here um, to kind of highlight this, this kind of paradoxical way of speaking. He says, faith is awe in the presence of the divine incognito. It is the love of God that is aware of the qualitative difference between God and man and God and the world. Um, so he was, um, he was really big into the, you know, he, he, he wrote about God as the holy other, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. So God is completely other than us. Um, and, and we cannot know God without God revealing himself to us, which he has done in Christ. Um, and a lot of this like I mentioned, was him wrestling through, this all started with his commentary on Romans. He's wrestling through scripture and he's basically finding the liberal theology that he was raised and educated with. It's just, it's not measuring up to scripture. Um, You know, it's not, it's not, he's not seeing in the Bible, the God that the liberal Protestants have. So that's kind of where this, this kind of comes from. Um, and this led to a lot of controversy as his book became popular. He was really attacked by liberals. Um, and what's funny is he, he was writing against liberals and he was attacked by liberals, but he didn't 
he wasn't just sort of received by theological conservatives. Um, his theology, this dialectical theology, um, started a trend towards something called neo-orthodoxy, which is a, a sort of following from Bart, a later mid-20th century movement in Protestant theology that didn't, it, was, it, it wasn't loved by everyone who was a, an orthodox confessing type Christian. Um, it, it shows sort of the complexity of his theology that he, he, he didn't just, you know, reject liberalism for traditional, you know, what we would think of as conservatism or evangelicalism, um, of his day, but he pursued his theology in such a way that he kind of found his own camp in a way. Um, and I don't think that he necessarily would have wanted to be finding a new camp, but I just mean he, no one was really doing what he was doing the way that he was doing it. Um, and we kind of see things with, um, with that, that tension, even amongst those who are more quote unquote on his side. Um, he had a, uh, a, a, a colleague, we shall say named Emil Bruner, um, who was similar to Bart in a lot of ways. They agreed on a lot. Um, but an example of his sort of controversies with, with people on all sides is Emil Bruner, he, he said something that uh, about God revealing himself, not just in the Bible, but also in nature. Um, and Bart's reply was called, no, exclamation point, <laughs> an answer to Emil Bruner. Um, Bart completely rejects natural theology, any idea of doing theology from nature to come to knowledge of God. He, he completely rejects it, which is something of a controversy about his theology. You know, um, it's, it's, it's interesting to have such a strong denial of natural theology from someone who, who you know, like I said, he comes from the Reformed tradition. Um, I, I, that's just not something that is necessarily an inherent part of it, of the Reformed tradition. I don't think Calvin would say, no, God doesn't reveal himself in nature. And again, with everything about Bart, this is a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. But the point being, um, he had this sort of very unique, very, you know, important theology that had to be reckoned with, whether you thought it was good or bad, or whether you agreed with it from the left or the right. It seems that nobody, he, he didn't just slide into categories that already existed. Is kind of what I'm, what I was trying to say, um, and he also kind of got into some, um, some other controversies, like I mentioned, controversies over natural theology. Um, oh gosh, I forget the guy's name now. Shoot, dang it, he's like the most influential liberal theologian of the 20th century. I should remember You're that. About but, Schleiermacher. Um, no, no, Schleiermacher was earlier. I'm thinking of, I forget. It starts with a B. Um, but Bart and him had kind of a back and forth, kind of two differing approaches to this idea of demythologization. Mythologization. So this other theologian who I can't remember is going to kill me. Um, basically proposed demythologizing the um, Bolt. I just saw, I just saw it in the article. <laughs> Rudolf Boltmann. Um, he denied the historical nature of scripture. He he wanted to get rid of anything sort of supernatural. Um, that that kind of approach you can kind of imagine, and and Bart was very opposed to that, so he was kind of engaged in those those controversies as well. Um, 
There were a couple other controversies that I think, particularly, I feel like some of the the some of our listeners might be more interested in. Um, he his doctrine of scripture was was kind of unique, um, and he kind of got into a little bit of trouble with some people because he 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 argues that scripture is not infallible; only Christ is infallible. the The word of God is Jesus, the incarnate second person of the trinity and scripture points us to jesus scripture is is not an infallible word of god jesus is the only infallible word of god um scripture is is a witness to jesus which doesn't mean that it's perfect in the sense that some people might use that word infallible um which is which is you know attack infallibility or not attack but deny infallibility and you're probably going to get into some hot water with some with some evangelicals which he did um and then there's also some controversy over uh, over universalism in in his thought um the idea that all will be saved um he had his doc the way he talks about election um is interesting he kind of talks about a universal election um, that all men, all mankind, are elect in Christ because Christ is the elect one. And disclaimer: I'm way out of my league here in trying to accurately and um, you know correctly communicate what Bart's doctrine of election is. There are there are people who whose careers are studying Bart, and I think they debate this kind of stuff. So I'm I, I'm just kind of giving what. That the the absolute, you know, six hundred thousand square foot or uh, bird's eye view, um, you know what I've what I've heard, what I've been taught. Um, this is not like an expert's opinion at all. Um, but so the question is, if all people are elect in Christ, whatever whatever that means, the logic of that leads to then everybody being saved, or at least that's sort of the thought, and it kind of seems. Like that's the conclusion, but Bart denied being a universalist. He 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 never taught it. He denied that he ever taught it. Um, what I, I've heard some people who, like I said, know a lot more about Bart than me, who have read way more th- of him than I probably ever will, um, say that basically like Bart's not a universalist because he says he's not. It's all there in his theology. All the pieces are there. But he doesn't put them together, so you're kind of it's kind of tough. Um, the way Bart writes, I've also kind of heard critiqued. He, he's he's not a necessarily a thinker that I that is the most consistent. It seems um, I think part of that is just the the way that he approached theology, like dialectically. You're going to have kind of this paradox, mm-hmm. kind of this back and forth, compared to someone like Calvin, who is so organized and precise and um i mean just just reading the table of contents of of even just one section of the institutes is like how do you how does he keep it all straight in his head is just amazing but um so there's i think that's another that kind of feeds into the controversy around him is um he just he's such a big figure that so many people know his name he said so much and a lot of it was very controversial so I think he he has kind of lent himself to, um, to being interpreted in a variety of ways, whether that's misinterpretation or not, I, I can't say, um, but 
he is certainly a a towering figure of of of, of theology. Not not I was going to say Protestant theology, but that's not even true because because Karl Rahner, the the sort of the equivalent Roman Catholic theologian of of, of the twentieth century, inter- interacts with Bart because you just you have to interact with Bart is kind of almost like a slogan that I've <laughs> that I've heard um, as long as I've heard people talk about um, Karl Bart. So to wrap up, um, I just want to give a, a, a little quote from him. Um, we all know this quote. Uh, he, this isn't, it doesn't originate with him, but he used it. So it, he, he came to America once. His son was teaching at the University of Chicago. And, and so he came to America in 1962, and he kind of went on a, on a speaking tour. And um, he was asked how he would summarize the essence of all the words that he had published. So remember that 9,300 <laughs> unfinished church dogmatics, all the commentaries, all the letters and articles and other books. How would, how would you summarize the essence of what you have to say? And his reply was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I think that that is a pretty profound statement, even if it might frustrate some eager seminary students who got to interview Bart or whatever. Um, I think that it, it really sums up what he's trying to do, even if he didn't do it perfectly, <laughs> and even if he didn't do it in a way that we all agree with, um, I think that it really shows his approach. Mm. God is the one who has revealed himself in Christ, and Jesus loves us because right. the Bible tells us that. So that's Karl Barth, at least a, a sort of attempt at an introduction to Barth's life, which um, is so interesting and not super easy to do. I have found, yeah. but um, no, I feel like it's definitely would justice. recommend. Yeah, I, I I like whenever whenever the Christians of history I do whenever they have like books or writings I like to like recommend where to like go, but it's really hard to do that with Bart because I have such a limited firsthand exposure to him. Um, so I'm not really going to do that so much as I would say just look into to stuff about Bart and by Bart and kind of see, I know there are recently um, Baker, I think published a couple of books. Like one was like a Bart reader and another one was like an introduction to the theology of Karl Bart or something. Hmm. I haven't read either of them. Um, those both, they were both on my list that I just haven't gotten to them. Um, but, but yeah, or you could just dive in and try and read the church dogmatics all at once. But why not? I, if you do, let me know how it goes because I, I, I'm, I'd be curious. <laughs> you have to read the whole index too. It's uh, part of the whole experience, <laughs> right? Cool. Well, well, thank you, Lucas, and you know, thank you for listening to this episode. It's a little bit longer of a Christians of History, but you know, sometimes it's hard to to do justice to the monumental figures of church history. Like sometimes 15 minutes seems like a slap in the face to somebody, you know. I don't know. <laughs> so it's it's nice to kind of go a little bit more in depth and to, um, you know, as you alluded to, we're not experts. We're not, um, you know, know-it-alls on any of these people, but we're getting exposed to them, learning about them in the hopes that when you hear about them, that you're interested and intrigued and you yourself want to go deeper. So thank you. And uh, if you'd like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast. You can email us um, at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, questions, episode ideas. Uh, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we'll, get, we'll send out a weekly email highlighting upcoming events, um, 
upcoming episodes, you know, some interesting information. Uh, also make sure to check out logos.com slash doxologypodcast. 